Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Nicole Gruder. I am ready to offer the mechanic a blowjob, not for barter, but just to get it out of my system, right? That and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of our new sponsors, and this is my new favorite online store. I have had a fabulous personal experience with Thrive Market. If you spend a lot of time going to the grocery, you can forget about that. Thrive Market, they sell all the top organic and healthy products at 25 to 50% off shipped straight to your door. Just do a price comparison to Whole Foods or, or whatever grocery store you like to shop at. You can easily find price comparisons on their site next to each product. It shows the retail price versus the Thrive Market price. And the savings, it's striking. They cut out the middleman and they work directly with the brand, so they pass all the savings on to their members. I couldn't get over how quickly... The package came, how fantastic their own brands are, their Thrive Market brands of stuff that they make are. It's just top-notch. I got myself some Lara bars, some apple cider vinegar, some nuts and seeds. I got myself a lot of bathroom supplies. I thought to myself, oh, but they probably don't have the super high-quality grain-free cat food, but they do. The site is super helpful and easy to use, too. You know how, well, myself, I'm often checking to see if the ingredients of something are really vegan. Well, the site does it for you. With a click of a button, you can just check for everything in the catalog that's vegan. So you get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. Now, keep in mind, the prices are already 25 to 50% below retail because they cut out the middleman. Now they're offering this additional $60 of free groceries. So go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. 
thrivemarket.com slash risk, you're going to be amazed at scrolling through the site, seeing all the stuff you can get and how convenient it is and how high quality it is. And it's just such a treat when the box arrives. So one last time, that's $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and that 30-day trial when you go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is jamie branch behind me now we're calling this week's episode staying power three situations where someone made it through it and is stronger for it these are three stories well they go to funny places they go to very provocative places. The last one is painful. The last one is one of those stories that took a hell of a lot of courage and generosity to share with us. So we're starting the year back in form. We are also starting the year specifically looking for people to pitch us for our monthly show in New York, and our monthly show in Los Angeles. If you live in one of those cities, or even if you live two or three hours away and are willing to make the commute, pitch us. You, you can write directly to me at kevin at risk-show.com, and I can give you all sorts of tips and let you know what the themes are going to be from month to month. Uh, but no, New York and Los Angeles, pitch us your stories. You can also find plenty of information on the submissions page at risk-show.com. Lots of great tips on how to pitch us there. New York and LA, we want to hear your stories. Now in a little bit, we're going to hear from a wonderful guy, Daniel Francesi. Oh my goodness, it's such a treat to have had him on the show. He is best known for being in the movie Mean Girls, legendary movie that, but he's also done a ton of television work recently. Look him up on Twitter at What's Up Danny. But before that, we're going to hear a story from that wonderful show we did in Madison, Wisconsin last year. This is Nicole Gruder. We always love when fans of the show or people who have done the show before recommend someone else to us. So this was a case where Shane O'Neill, who did the show sometime last year or the year before, he said, oh my God, I heard you guys are going to Madison, Wisconsin. There's this amazing writer and performer named Nicole Gruder there. You gotta ask her to come do the show. So we did, and it was fabulous. You can find her at NicoleGruder.com. Here she is now with a story we call Blood Sugar Sex Magic.
I'm driving into Grants Pass, Oregon one night, and I have two missions. The first is to get the van fixed the next morning early, and the other is to get laid. I was on tour with my dear friend Shane, and we were having uh, tea parties throughout the country with my grandmother's tea set in a van that was sort of outfitted to look like a teapot. We had these big fiberglass pieces that we had made for it. And at these parties, we were asking people what it was that stressed out their time. Very heady stuff. And then uh, we had that during the day. And then by night, we had our solo act. So there was a lot of different kind of performance stuff going on. Now, I had envisioned this tour as an opportunity to continue to sow my wild oats. But that is certainly not what was happening. Um, I uh, thought this was going to be sort of like a, a Led Zepp sex fest of the country, and it was devolving into an Amy Grant tour. And this is, <laughs> and I'm sure there's far more modern references I could make, but I don't know what they are. But you get the gist. That element of the tour sucked. I was thousands of miles into this tour, and I had yet to get like a glance my way, and I'm wondering, what am I doing wrong? So I was really internalizing all of this, becoming uh, kind of depressed, a little bit manic in my, my emotions, just like my stomach was sour, and I was just kind of sneering at people and emitting this awful, ugly, negative energy, which of course was adding insult to injury because it was repelling people instead of attracting them. So I uh, drove into Grants Pass and I found this dive bar. It was perfect, it was small, it was dark, it was empty, and there was a surly loner type bartender working. Um, he looked as depressed as I felt, so I thought, oh great, we're, you know, we'll make great company. Peas in a pod. And he was tall, barrel-chested, salt and pepper hair. And I thought, oh, good, he's a little bit older. You know, maybe if he hasn't seen much action lately, he'll just maybe gobble me up, you know, with the likes of me, you know, poor old me. And so I saddle up to the bar. And after a few drinks, I say, hey, you want to come to my hotel when you're done with the bar? And he was a man of very few words. And he says, sure. It's a date. Ah. So whatever. I didn't care. It'll do. So I go back to the hotel and I try to kind of sexy it up a little. I had a, a red scarf that I put over the fluorescent floor lamp and put on the slip that I had brought with me just for this very occasion. So everything was turning out just wonderfully. So I'm you know, trying to make it, to set the mood. And uh, sure enough, 40 minutes later, knock, knock. In walks the guy. I don't remember his name. And he comes in. I mean, really? I've worked really hard on this story, and I'm supposed to remember his name? Uh, So he walks in, and we're standing between the kind of like the fake wood table and the very weathered bed. And I'm, you know, trying to be sultry and seductive and coy all at the same time. And he sort of mechanically puts his hands on my hips, I'm thinking, oh, he's just nervous. He's not really getting into this. And so I start unbuttoning his shirt and still not a lot going on. So I bring him over to the bed, which was, you know, like four inches away. And, and I, I, I straddle him and I start kissing his neck and his collarbone and his chest and his stomach. And I'm running my hand underneath his undershirt and playing with his chest hair. And I'm getting closer to his 
belt and I'm licking his stomach and licking across his belt line and I'm grazing up his thigh and I'm not really feeling much of a hard-on going on so I'm thinking oh whatever he's a little older it takes a while it's fine it's fine (laughs) and I'm playing with his belt buckle and I look up at him to give him you know that look like ooh, this is gonna get serious now yeah he is looking at the wall at the floor at the door anywhere but into my eyes which is what one would expect at this juncture (laughs) so I'm thinking uh, this is not good this is really not good why is this happening and how is this happening and I started to feel really panicked and I felt like just like that drowning victim in a movie where you're, you're reaching up for the person that's supposed to be saving you and they're just drifting farther away and the waters are getting more and more murky and then the scene ends because the person drowns and I asked him what I thought to be a rhetorical question I was like uh is everything okay and he just looks at the door and says I should get going I have to go fishing at four in the morning So, (laughs) I was like, wow, fishing. You have a dripping hot wet pussy dangling over you right now and you're thinking about fishing? (laughs) I was like, and it was already so late. I asked him, I said, why did you bother coming here tonight? And he just looks through me and says, sorry. And he gets up and he walks out the door And I am sitting on the edge of the bed, still in that slip, feeling totally pathetic. And I get up and I lock the door behind him and my back hits the door and I slide to the ground and my my head goes into my hands and I'm just dumbfounded. I could not believe what had just happened. It was so close. And I, uh, I just felt numb. So I sat there for a while, and I got up, and then like the, really the saddest part was when I took that red scarf off of that lamp, because I was trying so hard. And I put on normal pajamas, and I went to bed. So the next day, I get up, and I bring the van to the mechanic. At this point, I am so stir-crazy, I am ready to offer the mechanic a blowjob, not for barter, but just to get it out of my system, right? And I'm kind of like scoping out where the break room is and you know the, the logistics of the whole place. And I'm like, oh my God, Nicole, just chill out. Just, you know, maybe this will happen. Maybe it won't. Just, you have, you, he's got all afternoon or all day to work on this uh, van. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. So I go to the restaurant next door. I get settled in, pull out my laptop, and I start emailing Shane, who is back at this commune in the mountains of Oregon, um, where we had settled in a few nights before. Now, this commune was teeming with men. Teeming with gay men! So, another strikeout for Nicole! In the meantime, Shane had signed up for the Grinder app, which was brand new then, and that is a gay male pickup site, if you all don't know that. So, good for Shane. And, uh, and I, I write to him, I say what had happened, with, how much the van was going to cost, what happened the night before, and he's like, wow, sorry about what happened with your homeboy. I was like, Shane, I am really needing to be touched by a man. 
And then I thought, oh my God, he's thinking I'm, I'm asking this of him. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. But he knew better. He knew better. So I don't hear back from him for a while. And in the meantime, I'm just like, I hate the world. Everybody's coming into the restaurant. And I'm just, Everybody just disgusted me. And I'm, you know, doing email stuff, all mad at the world. And, and he emails me back about an hour later. He says, remember this guy, Mana? I'm like, no, I don't, who, I don't, what? No, I don't know, what, why? And he says, you know, he's got like reddish hair, slight build. I said, no, I don't remember any Mana. Why are you asking me this? He says, well, Mana says he wants to cuddle and do it with you. And he's one of the hottest guys here, in my humble opinion. So there. And I was like, Shane, you asked him what? I can't believe this. I was totally mortified. And in the same breath, I was totally ecstatic. Yay. Thank you, Shane. You're the best friend ever. You are setting me up in this good old-fashioned fuck date. And you're the best. And then, she, and then he's, he, he concludes the whole conversation with, oh, and by the way, he's a shaman. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I, I got to make this work. I, just come hell or high water. So I get back. You know, I had turned from this tragic vixen from the night before into this, like, giggly, giddy girl. And I was, had butterflies in my stomach on the drive back. And so I get to the commune. And I get out, and I, I really don't know what this guy looks like. I'm a vague description. And so I'm talking to Shane uh, when I get back and, and looking around, looking around, is it him? Is it him? And then Shane nudges me. He says, look, that's Mana. And I look up, and I see this guy, indeed, with a reddish beard and a slight frame. Uh, he has cargo shorts on, uh, no shirt, and a kind of a, I don't know, Australian outback floppy camping hat or something, and a, a, a little string of, I don't know, like African beads and sandals. And I thinking, oh, I don't know, this is not really my type. Kind of threw me back to my co-op days where the guys were always, like, giving you a massage and trying to take it further, and, you know. <laughs> not like I ever stopped them from taking it further, but that creep factor is kind of lingering still. So I thought, oh, whatever, just roll with it. So he, um, he walks right up to me, calm, collected, confident, and he, he does look into my eyes. He had these big, beautiful brown eyes, and he looks right into them, and he says, hi. And my shoulders fall away from my ears, and my stomach unknots, and my giggling subsides, and I look right back into his eyes, and I say, hi. And he reaches down with his hand, and his, his hand slips into mine, and he gives it a squeeze, and he says, why don't you follow me? And I look back at Shane, I'm like, oh my God, here we go. So he leads me through these tall grasses to one of the only structures on the land, and it's an octagon-shaped cabin with an octagon-shaped bed inside. And it, it's filled with all the accoutrements that you would imagine from uh, a, that kind of scenario of a commune. It's got like little vials of scented oils and sandalwood incense and batik this and, you know, uh, tie-dyed that and lots of hand-woven things made with, um, that with, made with yarn um, that was spun on the land itself. And uh, it just fit the bill perfectly. So I'm relaxing, trying to relax, and Mana just walks up to me and calms me, sets me on the bed, and he starts kissing my neck and my collarbone and my chest and my stomach, and for a guy that was hanging out in a gay commune, he totally knew his way around down there. <laughs> so he's going at it, and after a few minutes, I think, oh, I better say something. 
said, Manna, it takes me a really, really long time to come with somebody the first time I'm with them. I don't know what it is, but that's how I'm wired. And he stops and he gently sort of squeezes my thighs. He pops his head up and he looks at me with these eyes just filled with love. I don't know how else to say it. And he says, Nicole, I have got all day long. And with that, I totally relaxed. It took a while, but that shaman made me bellow across that gay-ass land. Those pine trees had never heard a straight girl sing like that. So, you know, and I don't even remember all the, like, the gritty parts of us sucking and sucking and all of that. But what I do remember is that the wood grain from the furniture started to pop and the sun that was streaming in through the windows was like a movie effect of this sparkling going on and the fabric underneath my hands on the bed was becoming so much softer. And when we were fucking, I remember this sort of like white glittery aura around us and it sounds totally hippy dippy but it was true it was completely happening it was like this magical i don't know like this this this, god it sounds so hippy dippy but anyway it happened it was totally happening and it was like this dark spell was being lifted out of me that had such a grip on me i don't know like this veil was coming off of me and just drifting away and it was lovely. So we um, spent some time in there, and he, we actually got into a little bit of trouble for being in there, apparently, so boundary issues going on. Sorry, gay guys. Anyway. Um, <laughs> not sorry. Um, so, uh, we, so we spent the night in his tent that evening under these stars, and the sky was just filled with stars there. It was you know far away from the city lights. It was like, 50 Milky Ways were swishing around above our heads and the pine trees, you could see the whole outline, it was gorgeous. So the next night, or the next morning rather, we wake up, go at it again. I'm telling the world that this is happening (laughs) with my moans and groans. And I remember him rolling over and then rolling back with some graham crackers. He says, breakfast. And we were laughing about how we were getting all the crumbs in the sleeping bags and then at one point we thought, well, we should really join the others because there was a communal breakfast going on and a, the tea party, which was like my gig. So I had to kind of get to it. So we reluctantly left the, um, the tent and went down to greet all the other people who were grinning ear to ear at us because sound travels through the mountains and uh, we sat down to one of the loveliest tea parties of the whole tour, and I just have to say thank you, Mana, for all your love. It really meant the world to me. So thanks. <laughs> if we do this, it's gonna take a ton of blood, sugar, sex, and magic. The rewards will be great, but this shit ain't gonna be easy. They're magically delicious. Ah. I'm already mourning the loss of my magic night. Don't say magic night! It's a cliche! I mean, explain to me why sex is considered magic. What happened to sex just being magical and being this 
amazing expression of how much you love someone. I've got the magic. If there was some magical sex pill that I could take, I would. Then let's go magic pill shopping. Holy crap in Christ. So, faith, right? Uh, <laughs> my first experience with faith has to be when I was a young lad of like two or three. My parents converted from Catholicism to born-again Christianity. But they're also Italian New Yorkers from Brooklyn, so it wasn't like the severe Southern Christianity of television and of <laughs> other people's youth. For me, though, it was a big change because my parents were... Uh, my dad's dad was an immigrant from Italy, and it was a big deal that they changed from Catholicism to Christianity. I was supposed to be named Antonio after him, uh, but because uh, when they changed religions, my grandparents stopped speaking to them, they named me Daniel, which means God is my judge, without a middle name. I think my middle name was just like a middle finger. Um, uh, <laughs> But I grew up my whole life being taught that God was my judge. He's the only person that could judge me. So uh, it wasn't long before in three-year-old Daniel became like a mini little pastor. I was told stories about this, how an old lady during a volleyball game at a church picnic uh, got hit in the head with a volleyball and fell down. And I walked up to her and I'm like, you're healed in the name of Jesus. Like, and only like three. Um, and this one I actually remember. Uh, we were in Sunday school class and everyone was asked to sing their favorite Sunday school song. So one kid got up and was like, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Then it would go on and someone would be like, this is the day, this is the day. And then it got to me and I was like, let's get physical, physical. Come on and get physical. Let me hear your body talk. So surprise, I was a little baby gay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my mom got a talking to about that one. Uh, but even though um, I was gay, I still kept God in my life. It was weird. It was like these two parallel lives when I was growing up. Um, in middle school, uh, bless you. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in um, middle school, I could still remember every time somebody asked me, are you gay? And like how my ears would get hot and I would get like nauseous that I was found out before I even knew. And you know, why are you walking like you have a stick in your butt? Because I want one in there, okay? Um, <laughs> essentially. I kind of buried myself into my religion. I was president of the drama club at the same time I was president of my youth group. Um, it was this weird parallel universe where I sort of like embraced my asexuality and just stayed a good Christian throughout school. And then, you know, it wasn't so bad at first until my church we started doing things like picketing abortion clinics <laughs> where I was too young to really understand what I was doing. And, you know, um, now obviously I realize the horror in that. But then 
at that time it wasn't the case. And then I would ha- um, my youth group had to go to a carnival uh, that everyone in my high school went to. And I had to go up to people I knew or hardly knew in my high school and say, can I talk to you for a moment about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And face whatever it was going to be that I had to face for saying that in school, which sometimes was just as much ridicule that I was getting for allegedly being gay. But I stayed strong in my faith because God was my judge. And I knew whatever I did was going to be fine. And I sort of, again, I was hearing things in health class. You know, it's normal for young guys to maybe think about other young guys once in a while. It doesn't mean you're gay. Oh, good. That's good to know, you know? And I even had a health book that my aunt gave me that told me, you know, sometimes in male adolescence, something of a circle jerk might happen. And I was like, oh, I was really looking forward to that, but... for doing that and still not being gay, uh, but it never happened. It wasn't until AOL came around and the internet that I was able to talk to like-minded young men such as myself at four o'clock in the morning (laughs) that I started to maybe realize a little bit, things were maybe a little bit different for me. But again, I threw myself into my religion and I trusted in God and I went to college and I majored in musical theater (laughs) uh, using God's gifts. Uh, And so while I'm there, I'm in a southern school where I'm majoring in musical theater and all of the other people in the musical theater program, nobody was out of the closet because it was southern and it wasn't the same time as it is today. I mean, I know we still have a long way to come, but we were definitely not there then, especially in the south. And so of all the kids that are now gay, there was only one person that was out of the closet in college and he had a pride flag canopy over his bed. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's not me. So I guess I'm not gay. But the more that I was away from college and I was away from my parents, I was also sort of slightly away from God. I mean, I prayed and I kept God close to me in that way, but I wasn't going to church or active in any sort of like youth group or anything like that. And until my voice teacher said to me, uh, you know, we need some more uh, baritones in the chorus at my church. So I was like, oh, okay. They're like, we'll pay you $50 a week. Um, If you'll come, we just need some more voices. So I was like, all right, I'll try that. And I told my grandmother about it, who's my prayer warrior and like the most religious person in my family. I told her like really proud, like I'm singing in this church choir and they're paying me. She goes, you'll go to church for $50, but you won't go for God. And I was like, she's right. So um, I quit the choir, uh, but I didn't necessarily go back to church. Um, Through college, I had a couple of experimental phases. In the 90s, it was sort of acceptable to be bi-curious. Like, that was like a really cool thing that was happening, especially in the raver community. And armed with my AOL handle, (laughs) raver96, I... (laughs) I went out to raves and, you know, occasionally, you know, would dance with a guy or something like that. Very simple, still sort of feeling like different kind of energy. And then one drunken night in college, I actually kissed a guy. And it was rougher than being soft and it felt kind of right. And despite my still chasing him around to try to do it again after that crazy drunken night, he got a girlfriend and I went back into the closet. After school, as I was around, I was still exploring and trying to see what was going on with my faith and my uh, sexuality. Um, I worked at this restaurant and I got a girlfriend. And now I'm at 21. And I've got this girlfriend that 
was working at my restaurant that wanted to date me. In high school, my move was to have a crush on the girl that had the boyfriend, that they were probably going to be high school sweethearts. And then, oh, I could never be with her, so I don't want to be with nobody. And that kept me in the straight box. Uh, but now, you know, here's a girl that wants to be with me at work. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll be the perfect gentleman. You know, um, I will uh, bring her flowers and do all this other stuff. And we went on this date, and the next day at work, uh, she told her best friend, and we didn't even fuck. She's like, I can't believe it. I'm really proud of myself. And apparently she was a slut. <laughs> and so now I got really nervous because now the pressure was on me. It wasn't like I was the guy and being the gentleman and taking our time. It was like she wanted a bone and I was not ready. So I was also in a musical at the time. So I broke up with her because she never came to see me in my musical. <laughs> Such a straight guy thing to do. Um, <laughs> but before I broke up with her, I felt the pressure of really having to have sex with her. And I didn't know what to do, so I came up with a plan. Um, I approached my prayer warrior grandmother, who to this day is still one of my best friends. And I said to her, how do I approach this subject? And finally, I got the courage to speak to her about it. And I said, I have a big favor, and I don't know how to approach this with you. I said, I have erectile dysfunction. <laughs> And my plan was to get my poppy's Viagra. And then if I got my poppy's Viagra, then I was going to be able to, like, force myself to have sex with my girlfriend and remain straight. This was my plan. Obviously, you know, horrible plan. So as soon as I mentioned this to her, she goes, hold on a second. And she goes and gets the Bible, and she comes out and opens it up to a bookmark that has my name on it and a scripture about being gay. And I was like, you think I'm gay? you too? And I just ran into her bathroom and I slammed the door and I got on my knees and I prayed. And I couldn't think of a holier place to pray than my, my Nana's house. And I said, God, I said, I'm looking at you right now in the eyes, man to man. And I'm telling you that if you don't want me to be gay, then introduce me to a woman that I could give everything to her that she needs and she could give me everything I need and now at 21 right here and now I'll get married like people get married at 21 it's the south I was like I'll do it I was like but if you don't then I'm gonna have to know because I believe in you and have faith in you that if you don't show me that girl that you want me to be this way and I promise you as your son that I will spend the rest of my life trying to figure out why um, so it was a deep moment, as you can imagine. And I came out and I was like, sorry, I was so upset that I yelled at my Nana, um, which I never did before. And she was like, it's okay, it's okay. She was like, I don't want to interfere, but do you want me to talk to my pastor about this? And I was like, yes, please, somebody, anything, like you're the only one I've spoken to, let's do it. So her pastor came up with this phone number. And so this is uh, what happened when I went to gay conversion therapy. <laughs> She didn't know what it was, and it wasn't like the electric shock kind that they're talking about. But I go in, and my first meeting, I have to fill out a test. And the test is like, have you ever stolen anything over $500? Have you ever wanted to physically harm someone? Um, do you like the idea of a penis in your mouth? Like, it was like every, like, third or, like, fourth question <laughs> was probably, like, what they picked out on the Scantron and, like, went with. There was... The idea of health class telling me was okay, and there wasn't a lot of uh, TV. You know, I read a details magazine once that said it was okay for straight guys to paint their fingernails navy blue. 
Um, that gave me a little permission to be the way I was, but this felt like a trick, but I did it anyway. I filled out the whole form, and I went to six meetings with this guy. On the first meeting, he met me, and he was like, let me just tell you that you're not gay. <laughs> and I was like, that's what I want to pay to hear. And he was like, you're not gay. Like, trust me, I have a lot of gay clients, and you're not gay. And I was like, thank God. He was like, maybe you're just confused by bisexuality, or maybe you have some feelings, but you could suppress them. And I was like, oh, great. And so I went home like with a renewed energy and a new faith. And I thank God for this, ironically. And then I started, you know, still talking on AOL, feeling, still being a little, you know, peeking around corners and whatever. And I get into my sixth class with this guy. And my grandmother was like, is this working? Because... She was like, it's expensive. So if it's working and you're feeling better and you're enjoying this, then please continue to go. But if you're not, like, we can kind of stop because there's a lot of money. And I was like, well, let me just go a few more times. Like, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I need to talk to somebody. So I went in and I speak with him this time and I'm just like, I need to know what I need to do and I kind of need to do it fast. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of time to be here. And he's like, he was like, listen, like, it's not a problem. I'm like, I just feel like I'm struggling inside. Like, I'm, he's like, what are you afraid of? He's like, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, I'm really just afraid of going to hell. Like, I, I don't want to go to hell. I'm a good Christian guy. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that a gay person who loves God would go to hell. He's like, you're not going to go to hell. I'm like, well, he's like, listen to me. You're not going to go to hell. And I'm like, I'm not? He's like, no. I was just saying this to my wife the other day. He was like, when she, and I was like, your wife? Like, I didn't know if I was gay, but I knew for shit sure that this guy was. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, listen to me. And, he's, and this is vulgar, but I'm going to say it. He said it. And I know you don't care about vulgarity, but in the tone and talking about God, it seems weird. But he was like, you could be sucking a dick. And the second coming of Christ could happen, and you will still go to heaven because you believe in God. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah. And, <laughs> and I was like, I'll be right back. I love the meter running. And went straight to AOL, and I lost my virginity that night. <laughs> Yes, it's worth some applause. It was to a stranger. It was calculated. It was a test. It wasn't something that was emotional. I wanted to find someone I wasn't attracted to, which is sad, I think. And I wanted to find someone who I wasn't attracted to because I didn't want to like, find someone I like and screw it up if I didn't know what I was doing. And I did it, and it felt good physically, but not spiritually. I still felt like there needed to be some sort of connection with God and love because that's the way I know love to be. So it didn't work out for me. And through a series of mishaps, I was like, maybe I'm not even gay. And I went back into this vortex of the closet. And I started just going back to being bisexual. And then I had a moment where I moved to New York City, which is like, if you're gay, it's like being hungry and living in a buffet. Um, there's gay men everywhere. I moved to New York City and I was working as a bouncer and this girl came on to me and asked me out. And I said, sure. And I remember being out with her and being in uh, Union Square after our date and making out and, you know, breaking away from the kiss and being like, why the hell am I doing this? I was like, nobody's watching me. Nobody cares. I was like, I think I'm like actually gay. And I had this like realization moment, but still wasn't comfortable. I actually legit came out of the closet in 2014. 
So that, thank you. Uh, but after I came out, I started to look for where's God in this equation still. I was still having a bit of that issue. And then I was working on this movie in New Orleans and I met this crazy woman slash maybe possibly an angel or whatever in a parking lot of a Walmart, um, which is where all the angels hang out. <laughs> and she defined enlightenment for me in a weird way. She was talking to my friend in the parking lot and she's like, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, blah, blah, blah. She was drunk or whatever. I don't know. And then she came around his car and got to my car and she was like, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, no, I don't, (laughs) you know, laughing at my friends. And she's like, I'm talking about God. And I was like, well, yeah, I do know what you're talking about. Because the one thing I'll never do is deny that I believe in God. That's the one thing that I can't do. I've been put in situations before, and I just that's just personally something I'll never do. So I was just like, yeah, I do believe in God. And she was like, God's like a new car. And I was like, you lost me again. <laughs> like, like, and she's like, no, 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 no. Did you ever get a new car? Like, in any one round of applause, you got a new car, like, right? Before you've had a new car. Right? So she's like, She's like, before you get your new car, you don't really notice it that much before. And then you get your car, and then when you're driving on the street, you go, oh, there's my car in red. And oh, that person's got my car too. And oh, look, you know, there's my car with the hatchback or whatever. You know, you're enlightened to the fact that the car exists. So God's like that. Like once you have God, you see him in everything and everywhere. And I started to like really think about it and like look for God. I was newly single and I was trying to find a way that I could find God in my life and equate it to love. And so I was like, well, maybe God, you know, was on AOL and allowed me to like open up and speak to people, you know, and perhaps like God was in the details (laughs) telling me that it's okay to paint my nails or God was in the conversion therapy, which came from the pastor and my grandmother which was a way for me to figure out that it was okay to be gay in an odd way. So I really started keeping my eyes open and looking everywhere. And, you know, I'm still gay and I'm still Christian, but now I'm engaged. And thank you. And we talked about God on our first date. And it was one of those things that just made me go, you know, sometimes when you have faith, like God is in love, even in gay love. And you just have to have faith to find it. So, God bless. Why? 
the night air And if I die too young This is Risk. This is Kevin Morby behind me now, and we just heard from Daniel Francesi. You can find him on Twitter at What's Up Danny. Before that, we heard a little interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And now I want to let you guys know that the time has finally come that you can pre order the Risk book. Now, the book itself won't be coming out till next summer, but it means the world to us if you pre-order it. Because if you pre-order it, the chances of it getting on the New York Times list in the first week or two that it's out will be, you know, it'll be a possibility if we get people pre-ordering it. So it's a big, big, big deal to have as many of our fans as possible to be pre-ordering copies for themselves, for their families, for their friends. <laughs> it's going to be, I don't know how many stories quite yet, because we're going through this enormous treasure trove of stories, still narrowing things down as I speak. It has been such a moving extraordinary process revisiting so many of these stories having absolutely brand new ones come into the mix that have never been heard on the podcast before and for the ones that have been heard on the podcast before with some of them it's really striking how they take on new dimensions when they're written down on the page how there's stuff that starts happening between the lines and you have a little bit more time for some of the stuff to sink in or or to look back or think ahead. And I've been very genuinely surprised at how remarkably new some of these stories that I've heard so, so many times already are when you read them on the page. Plus, we've got interviews with the storytellers and, you know, there's an introduction and an afterword by me. And it's just a very, very special thing to own and a great way to introduce people to risk who might not be used to, you know, podcasts or, or, or that sort of thing. Just another remarkable way to be taking in this incredible content that comes down the pike through risk. So go to risk-show.com slash book and pre-order, not just for you, but for your friends and your family. Pre-order tons of them, my friends, at risk-show.com slash book. And another thing, if you like stories, and I know already that you do. You know what? You're going to love the Audible comedy series, Hold On with Eugene Merman. On each episode, Eugene, you know, he plays Gene on Bob's Burgers. 
Eugene sits down with a special comedian guest and asks them questions about a true story they've told in the past or are telling in the present. For example, some fine folks from Risk have gone on to answer questions and provide the story behind their story. Kumail Nanjiani, Reggie Watts, Jonah Ray, Lisa Lampanelli, just to name a few. Weekly episodes of Hold On are available on podcast apps and exclusively ad-free for members of Audible and Amazon Prime. So just go to audible.com slash hold on to check them out. That's audible.com slash hold on. And just one last thing, don't forget that stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then the mailman picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail every time. Print postage any day, anytime. Stamps.com is always open. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Now, our final story on today's episode is a very special one for us. This young lady... And I do mean young. She's a college student. She pitched us uh, when we were coming to Chicago just a couple months ago. And when we heard the story, we realized that it was so intimate and so sensitive and so difficult for her to share. She's from Somalia originally. She now uh, goes to school in Chicago. And she wanted to share about something pretty traumatic and painful that happened to her in her childhood. And it was quite moving the way that she shared this with me. She, you know, had never done anything at all like this. You know, not, not no background in storytelling or anything like that. You know, when a person comes to us like that, they have to battle against shyness and uh, just the unusualness of saying out loud stuff that you're not used to saying out loud. So, without further ado, here she is now. This is Muna with a story we call The Day Everything Changed. Carry on world like some strong bird, beautiful stranger. Oh, beautiful stranger. When I was about six years old, I remember sitting on a tall wooden stool where my legs were dangling back and forth. I was sitting in an unfamiliar house where the yard smelled like rotten fish and musty mud. I kept rubbing my sweaty palms together and on my jeans I was 
so sweaty even though it was chilly September morning. It was about 6 a.m. The sun was barely up. I was wearing my favorite pink furry coat and my Harry Potter glasses. It was windy. I didn't know why I felt so uneasy. Earlier that morning, Hoyo, Hoyo means mom in Somali, we both left the house quietly. It was strange because we never left the house alone, just the two of us, especially so early in the morning. Everybody in the house was still sleeping and school hasn't started yet. Even the streets were eerie and empty and the air smelled like lohoh, which are Somali pancakes that we had every day for breakfast. The entire neighborhood smelled like lohoh, even though we were the only Somali family living in the neighborhood. We lived in Sana'a, Yemen, the capital of Yemen at that time. I didn't question where we were headed, but as we walked into the empty intersection, Hoyo flagged down a taxi for us. As soon as we got in, I placed my forehead on the cold taxi window and watched people open their shops as we drove into a neighborhood with unpaved roads. The ride was pretty bumpy. We got off the taxi and started to head to the house. I've never been to that neighborhood before and I couldn't recognize any of the houses in it. As we walked, Hoyo and I never exchanged any words. The whole time, I didn't know why Hoyo had brought me here so early, but we walked anyway and we headed to the house. Once we arrived, a mystery woman with a niqab. Niqab is a cloth women wear to cover their face, but you can still see their eyes. She was the one who opened the house door for us when we knocked. Her and my mom, Hoyo, um, had exchanged some words that I didn't hear and she let us into the house. It was weird because who wears a niqab in their own house? It felt like she was hiding something in a way. But I, of course, didn't question it. I just went along because Hoya was there and, you know, everything should be safe. We should be okay. I trusted her. So Hoya tells me when we enter the house to go sit on a stool and to wait for her. So she walks away with the mystery woman and they walk into a corner and they start talking. I couldn't hear them so I was just nervous sitting on that stool. In hindsight now I know that they were negotiating on what type I'll be getting and how much Hoya would be paying for it. I just sat there and watch the light pink and blue colored sky as the sun started to rise, waiting for Horia to come back. But as time passed by, I started to get nervous. My legs started to get all tingly. It was as if my body was warning me about something. After a few minutes, Hoyo came back and she sat next to me. The mystery woman left us and she headed into a room. Hoyo wouldn't make eye contact with me this entire time. She came and sat next to me, but we didn't exchange any words. I was a talkative kid, so I asked her a lot of questions. I kept asking and asking, but every time Hoyo would turn me down, 
So I eventually just stopped asking because I didn't want to make her mad. Something felt weird. And I didn't know if she was worried or mad, but she seemed off. She wasn't the regular Hoyo that I knew. Maybe she didn't even want us to be there. I really don't know. I couldn't see the expression on her face because she was also wearing a niqab. I could see her eyes though and the few glasses that she would look at me. Her eyes were distant, cold, and she wasn't looking at me. She was kind of looking through me. We just sat there quietly. The yard was so silent. I was thankful to hear the birds sing from the distance. The air felt heavy and dense, so thick you could almost touch it. And I really felt alone in that yard, in that house. Something felt odd and I couldn't put a finger on it and I just really wanted to go home. I don't remember how much time had passed till the woman came out and told us to come in. I jumped down from the windstall and held Hoya's hand for support. Her hands were cold and I still had this weird feeling. The mystery woman held the door for us as we approached the room slowly. The room had an eerie aura to it. It was so high up and had maroon curtains covering it, so it kind of gave the room a shadowy, dungeon-like look from the door where we were standing. There was one light bulb hanging from the ceiling, but it wasn't bright enough to light up the entire room. So the room was a little dark at first, but as soon as my eyes adjusted, I was able to see the breathing bodies laying on the floor, covered with blankets alongside the three walls facing the door. There was a person sitting in the center of the room, but I wasn't able to see that person's face because they were facing the window away from the door. And as soon as Hoyo and I entered the room, we heard this screaming. We head back to the room immediately and we close the door so the cold air won't come into the room. Hoyo and I sat on the edge of the mattress on the floor. It was really thin and I could see the person in the middle of the room now. It was an old woman and she had cartoon-like wrinkles and she had no teeth. She just kept smiling. So I am calling her the Toothless Witch for the rest of the story. The girls around me were all moaning and grunting in pain as their mothers held them. I wasn't able to see their faces. They were all covered in their blankets, but I could still hear their moans. In the center, there was this girl and her mother, and she was the one who was screaming. She wasn't moaning quietly like the other girls. She was screaming and she was crying and she was laying in front of the toothless witch. The Toothless Witch was having trouble keeping the girl's legs open, so the mystery woman rushed to help her as the girl's mother held the girl down by her arms to keep her from moving too much. A few minutes later, they let go of the girl. She wouldn't stop screaming, even though the surgery, you know, an air quotes surgery, is done. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what was happening. Everything was happening too fast. I didn't know how to react, but it was obvious that I was next because the witch, Hoyo, 
and the mystery woman were all looking at me and I felt like I was trapped in that room. There was no way for me to escape. So the toothless witch greeted me and Hoyo and Hoyo slowly pushes me forward. So I start crawling to the center of the room. The witch tells me that I was brave right away. She tells me that I was a good girl, that I won't cry like the other girl did and I won't make a fuss and that I was the youngest in the room and I immediately wanted to prove myself that I was the strongest of them all. I made sure to not protest during whatever it was that was about to happen to me. She told me that she was sure of how I won't resist like the girl before me did. So she slowly guided me to lay down in front of her and Hoyo proceeded to take off my pants. Meanwhile, the girl before me was laying down to my left just crying. She wasn't screaming anymore. She was laying down in a fetal position, rocking back and forth, and she was just whispering to herself, why me? Why me? And she was whimpering, and I really just wanted her to shut up because it was making me panic even more. But she must have felt alone just as much as I did. Now I realized that she was in so much pain. I remember closing my eyes and listening to my heart beat faster and faster, like it's about to explode out of my chest. I told myself that it will pass as Hoya took off my underwear. I told myself that I should be quiet like a good girl would as the witch washed her hands. As soon as I open my eyes, I see the witch open a new pair of double-edged razor blades. I quickly close my eyes because <laughs> I got scared. And I just tried to convince myself that whatever she was about to do to me wouldn't hurt that bad, that I could do it. I heard her say, relax sweetie, this medicine makes you numb. And she waved a black bottle with the yellow cap in my face and she said, you won't feel a thing. And she spread my legs open more firmly now and proceeded to do whatever she did. I don't really remember anything after that. Of course, there was some blood on my underwear when I got home and I experienced some pain for a few days. At least the witch was right about one thing, which is the numbing part, because emotionally I never felt anything after that. I was left forever numb. It was never explained to me why. I never understood what that whole morning was about. It was as if it never happened when I got home. Hoyo and I never had a discussion about it, but I wasn't the talkative little girl anymore. I'm not angry at Hoyo for taking me there that morning. I understand why she did it, but I am angry at the toothless witch because if you cut girls' genitalia for a living, the least you can do is make sure that your hands are not icy cold. The whole experience left me with some trauma that manifested itself into numbness, unhealthy fascination with death at a very young age, and not being able to process emotions. I mean, I can't cry when I tell this story because I'm still so detached 
from that experience. So a few years forward, my family and I moved to the US when I was about 13 years old. I wasn't the only Somali girl in a class full of Arab kids anymore. Instead, I became the only black girl with a hijab, which is a headscarf, in a class full of white kids. The U.S. was totally different from what I was used to, and it was a culture shock for me. After I got adjusted to our new lifestyle and took sex ed for the first time, I realized that female genital mutilation, female genital cutting, is not a thing here. It's not normal. I became ashamed and never shared it with anyone. I became angry and used that anger to research and learn what it was. Now I know that it doesn't define me. I learned that it is a tradition that only inflicts harm on young girls' bodies and exists to restrict their sexuality. And I know there are some girls who have been through it who feel ashamed of who they are and their bodies because they went through this surgery. I want to reach out to those girls who went through it as well, just to tell them that they're not alone. Female genital mutilation is a tradition that needs to go away because it only inflicts harm on young girls' bodies. It's a tradition that just makes them feel less of who they are makes them hide their identity and doesn't empower them at all. That's why it needs to go away. And I do love being Somali. I love my culture, just this tradition that I hate. And I'll do anything in my power that it won't happen to another girl. Not on my watch. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is 07 behind me now. And of course, we just heard a story from Muna. Muna wanted me to pass on that, in fact, 
There is a ban against female genital mutilation in Somalia that has been going into effect since 2016. And if you want to learn more about this sort of thing, take a look online at the Global Alliance Against Female Genital Mutilation. And don't forget, there are many more remarkable stories that will be coming in the Risk book. Some of the very best stories that have ever been shared on the podcast before and stories never before heard on the podcast. And you know what? If you want to keep up with news about risk like that, you can go, there's a little signing up for our newsletter at risk-show.com on most of the pages. On the right side, there's the risk newsletter. Put your email address in there and you press sign up and that'll get you the emails about all of our live shows and the book pre-order. The way the book pre-order works is you go to risk-show.com slash book. You can pre-order there and it will mean the success of the book if we get enough pre-orders. You know, that will be a huge boost to whether or not the book does well if there's lots and lots and lots and lots of pre-orders. So go to risk-show.com book and pre-order for yourself and your friends today. Now I'm going to let you know where Risk is appearing live next. On January 20th, we are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. January 20th, we're back at the Bootleg in L.A., on January 20th, we are also in San Francisco. I will be hosting that show in San Francisco at the Swedish American Hall. Uh, we have Guy Branham, Dana Gould, Biz Ellis, and Marcella Arguello are all going to be there that night, January 20th, in San Francisco. On January 26th, we have our first ever show in New York at Caveat. Caveat is on Clinton Street in the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Come on out. That's going to be a very special show January 26th in Manhattan at Caveat on February 17th. Then we're back at the bootleg again in Los Angeles. And then on February 24th, we're back in New York at Caveat. So that's what I have to say for now for our upcoming live dates. And everything else you might want to know about us is at our site, risk-show.com, or at our school, thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>